0: Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 this morning. Going to be a, a topical study both uh, this morning and and this evening. Uh, Pastor mentioned this morning uh, concerning the ruling uh, this week. Uh, really, you know, looking at the culture and looking at the. The lay of the land for the last really few weeks perhaps even months there's been a lot of of talk a lot of discussion on love and what love is so this morning uh, what i would like to do is just examine the chief command uh, that christ set for really for his followers and, and for all people and that is to love god and then the second the second command to love your neighbor as yourself so Follow with me in Matthew chapter 22. We'll start reading in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus here is taking a direct quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6, a very well-known passage to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, understanding that their chief commandment was to love God, was to love God. Uh, the God that had, had brought them out of Egypt, had, had delivered them from, from the tyranny that was there, had given them promises, had given their people promises through Abraham and so forth. So the chief commandment was to love God, and then the subsequent commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. But the, the, the task is impossible. Nobody can love God in and of themselves. Nobody, nobody can, uh, even at looking at life situations, nobody can muster up love or feelings because oftentimes love is equated with simple feelings, with emotions. But primarily, love is not emotional. Love is a mindset. It's a commitment level. It's a dedication to something. And the only way that really the, the main proposition or the main thesis uh, for this morning's message is this. Love cannot happen unless there's a work of God in a person's heart. Genuine love. We can say the word love all that we want, but the substance of that love is really being worked at, worked out in what love does and how it displays itself. So this morning, I'd like to break the, the idea of loving God into three different aspects. We'll discuss each one of those and seek to apply them as we go. First, the love of God is the duty of all men. This partakes of our mind, the way that we think towards God. It's the devotion of all men, and that is my my will, my choices are fixed towards God and following Him and obeying Him. And then thirdly, my love for God is the delight of all men. And this is where we see emotion. This is where we see our affections given towards God. Now it's interesting, years ago, almost 20 years ago now, uh, my wife and I were newly married and a young person asked us, I'm I'm not really sure why they asked us this, uh, but said, so what happens if you wake up one morning and you don't love your wife anymore or to my wife, you don't love your husband anymore? What would you do? And I can't remember, quite frankly, it was a long time ago, uh, the exact answer that I gave, but I, I do remember something like it matters very little of how I feel. It doesn't really matter whether I wake up and I love the Detroit Tigers, and the next day after a loss, I, I don't love them anymore. It, it matters very little concerning my affections towards things or things that I, I happen to love. Uh, it, it, it matters very little concerning whether I have an emotion towards my wife or whether I, I don't, because love is not primarily an emotion. Emotions do follow love, for, for sure, but they are not the driving force behind love. So, the, the, the episode, let me have you turn over to Luke chapter 18 just for a moment. Luke chapter 18. We see in Luke chapter 18 the idea that uh, there, there is a, uh, a resistance to this love for God, a resistance to the love that God definitely commands. But we see here that this love is a natural love. It's a love that's been given by the Spirit uh, in, order to, in order to love God the way that we ought to. Look at Luke chapter 18. Verses 15 and following. And they were bringing even their babies to him, so that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. They said, All these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he was very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things impossible with men are possible with God. It's an interesting episode. Uh, This rich young ruler comes to Christ and asks him, Okay, how do I get eternal life? Jesus quotes a few of the the different commandments to him, do these things and you'll have eternal life. He said, I've already done them. But Jesus really points to the chief problem of this individual, and that is, what does he love? And the Bible is very clear that obviously he loved his wealth more than he loved God. The one commandment was left out, which is interesting. Jesus didn't immediately say, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength because he was really driving at something. And that is, you've got a divided love. You love your money more than God. And it's showing itself in the decision that you ultimately have made. So the love of God is the duty of all men. First, the basis of our love for God. What is the, what is the foundation of this love? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse 5 says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ, we we have to be able to see that this love for God isn't isn't uh, earthly. It's not something that I can actually do. It's something that comes from God himself. the The interesting thing is, after the Gospels, when you see Jesus showing these two great commandments, which we we see several different times uh, throughout the gospel record, as soon as you hit the epistles, you never see that chief command ever repeated again. And that is, you don't see Paul saying in 1 Corinthians to love God, or in 1 Thessalonians, love God. There's a sense in which, after the work of God in the person's heart, of bringing them to salvation, of of regenerating that person's heart, the love of God is natural. We love God because he first loved us. And as soon as I understand that that God loved me, and he opens my mind, my, my eyes to that reality... The natural response is to love. As well, in, inside of what Jesus is teaching oftentimes inside of the New Testament, is the idea of childlike faith. You don't have to teach a child to trust. They naturally do that. When my kids were young and, uh, and you know, standing on the stairs, when they were one, two years old, I didn't have to beg or plead for them to jump off and jump into my arms. They naturally did that. They naturally had a trust. Now, I don't know that I could catch my 17-year-old now. I don't know that I would try. I'd probably just move out of the way and let him, let him fall and say, you know, he shouldn't have done that. Why, why would you trust me like that? Um, but the, the childlike faith is, is really being seen because it's something, it's something that God has to do in a person's heart. That's why Jesus says if you, if you don't have a faith like a child, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Children naturally believe, they naturally love the people that that are there. And it's that type of approach that that Jesus is commanding. But you just don't see that repeated in the New Testament epistles. Why? Because it's assumed. The idea is if God has done a work for us and in us, that I would naturally and and really uh, patiently and steadfastly love God. Inside of my, my Christian existence, my love for God is also evidenced by my other loves. And Jesus brings that out in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. He says to them in the Sermon on the Mount, You cannot have two masters, it can't be done. You can't serve both God and mammon or God and wealth, it's an impossibility. Why? Because your heart is going to be given to one or the other. As we saw even in the rich young ruler, so my love for God is evidenced by the things that I treasure in my heart. And then we also see uh, the balance of my love for God, and that is uh, i guess in a sense how how can this be evidenced? How can I know that that I am doing uh, what I ought to be doing according to what God has said and laid down in his word concerning love for him if you will please turn over to 1 John chapter 5 1 John chapter 5 because i think John makes it very clear to us concerning what this love is going to look like if i if i genuinely love god with all of my heart with all of my soul with all of my strength 1 John chapter 5 start reading in verse 1 John says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So we see, we see really that the, uh, if, we, if we say that we love God on the one side, but it's not balanced with actual love for my brother or my sister or my neighbor, then it's out of line. I can't say one if I can't say the other. Uh, Both have to be be together. And what John is trying to teach the, the people is that this love for God is directly evidenced by my love for others. My love for God is directly evidenced, on whether I am willing to keep that central commandment. And His commandments are not burdensome. In other words, they're not impossible to keep. Why? Because the spiritual work in my heart. And remember, what is the first spiritual fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is first love. So this, this idea of love for God primarily as a duty, the duty of all men, is something that is done in me through the spirit of god at my salvation in which i am i am evidencing that love for god in real ways as i look at my relationship with him so it is first the duty of all men secondly my love for god or god god's love in me really is my devotion it's my devotion the 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 idea of devotion very simply is profound dedication, or, or in other words, a consecration, a giving of oneself towards the, really the, the best interest of the person loved. And this is where we get to the, the central aspect of, of love, as we understand it, of that of commitment, of that of this is, this is something that is so deeply ingrained in me that I must do this, I must give myself to this particular love. The principle is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you'll turn there, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We see the Apostle Paul reflecting upon this this really deep-seated commitment and devotion to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This idea of the love of Christ controlling me, uh, the, the idea of that Jesus' love for me is something that, that uh, is so deeply ingrained in me that I must act that it's going to evidence itself in, in real ways, in tangible ways. The picture, the picture really throughout the scriptures is an amazing one of love, and that is of such a deep-seated commitment that the best thing is always done for the person loved, even at personal expense, even, even when it could cost the, the other person. The difficulty oftentimes when we look at the scriptures and the scriptural record is it clashes very greatly against love in our day. I teach I teach youth. Uh, I teach in the, in the high school, 7th through 12th grade, and different levels of, of different things, of course. But one of the goals, uh, by the time that my kids are in their senior year, is we start to teach them current issues, uh, different ethics, and, and, and so forth. Trying to get them to understand how to apply Christianity in the in the world that they're living in. One of my favorite, and I'm I'm probably a, a little bit warped on this, but one of my favorite sections to to deal with is the section on dating. And we we usually hit that uh, usually early on in the in the senior year, and I don't approach it uh, as you know, dating is bad, don't do not do this. It's obviously primarily up to their parents and so forth, whether they go out to McDonald's and, and share a fry or not. It's really not up to me. The challenge is always this. What does genuine love actually look like? What does it, what does it look like in day-to-day conduct? And that is trying to teach the kids that, that genuine biblical love, even on a level of a, a boy wanting to go out with a girl, okay, is at a level of devotion to God primarily. And then that streams down into the relationship with one another, whether you're, whether you're in upper high school, whether you're in college, or, or whether you're, you're engaged to be married. The principle of growth in that and the picture of growth in that throughout the scriptures is a profound one. But here's, here's the difficulty with many young people. the the idea of their love for God and their relationship with God as a Christian young person having grown up in a Christian environment their whole life is actually quite difficult for them to understand fully. Because if you were to ask any one of the kids in, in youth group or in the high school, so do you love God? The answer would inevitably be yes. Then you could ask a secondary question. Well, how have you shown that this week? Your love for God being evidenced in your, your love for your neighbor and so forth. Why? Because oftentimes the point of comparison of what God has done in the heart is really not, in, in a inside of a Christian young person's mindset, they really weren't that bad. What were they saved from? You know, many of the kids, if I were to ask my kids 7th through 12th grade, when were you saved? When did you come to Christ? the highest percentage of the people saying that are anywhere between, you know, uh, they're, they're saying anywhere between five and seven years old. Well, how bad is a five-year-old? How bad are they? Now, some of you, having been in nursery for many years and, and potentially teaching through junior church and so forth, you're like, they can be pretty rough. They can be pretty rough in their, in their attitudes towards one another and their parents and so forth. But you look at, you look at our culture... And individuals, perhaps, that you know that have gotten saved later in life, who have lived a a rough life, the tendency for them is to love God more. Why? Because they've been saved from much. Uh, Turn over, please. We'll look at this in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. It's really a a profound teaching and one that, that caught my attention several years ago that I had, quite frankly, never really thought through the implications of it. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 and following. It's a longer passage. It says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A certain certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose, suppose the one, he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who can even forgive sins? And he said to this woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see a contrast between two different groups of people there. You see the Pharisees who, in their self-righteousness, if you were to ask them, So do you love God? Do you keep that commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Inevitably, they would say, Yes, of course we do. Look at all of the things that we do in in God's name. Look at all of the things that we have done for Him. But the contrast is this. They were not forgiven of much. Why? Because they hadn't done much in their thinking, in their mindset, in their context. They weren't that bad. That's why Jesus would make statements like, I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but the sinner's. Why? Because in a passage like this, and and oftentimes even in our own experience with God, why does our love for God seem at times shallow? Not much devotion towards God. Because we haven't really gripped how much God has saved us from. How how wicked can a five-year-old be? Five-year-old wicked kids, okay, in their hearts might not evidence that much at five, but you let that heart go uncontained for 50 years. And I'll show you a 55-year-old that hates God in incredible different ways, who rejects the very, the very sound of the gospel. Why? Because all of us have that seed of depravity, that seed of wickedness in our hearts. All it needs is time. All it needs is, is further experience. But this individual who Jesus said is saved, your faith has saved you, understood just how wicked she genuinely was. And she came to Christ. She loved Christ. And and Christ forgave her of her sins. It's It's a difficult idea, but one that I think that is important for us to even be teaching our children. And that is God has saved us from much. And it's not about the amount of sins. It's about the sinful heart that all of us have that wants to turn us away from the true and living God in our love and our devotion towards Him. So the principle is Christ's love for me. And the picture is, throughout the Scriptures, is that genuine love understands what God has done for them. And it seeks that God with all that they have and with all that they are. They are consecrated and dedicated to that God. So it's the duty of all men. It's the devotion. Our love is the devotion of all men. And then third and lastly, that my love for God should be the delight of all men. It should be my delight. And this speaks of our affections, our emotions. Sometimes affections is a better, a better term because emotions seem to, to be up and down so oftentimes. But an affection, a deep-rooted affection is unmoved. It doesn't really matter what happens to that particular thing. It doesn't really matter what... Uh, what challenges a marriage would face or a love for a particular thing faces. Um, the, the issue of a deep-seated affection is something that endures through the, the passing of time. And that's what we oftentimes see in, inside of the scriptures. And that, that deep-seated love and the affection that that brings is where we, where we come away with ideas of, of being on fire for God. Uh, having zeal towards the things of God. Why? Because if my mind is right and my will is correct and following devotion to Jesus Christ, then my affections are going to follow inevitably. We see an interesting episode. Turn over, please, to Acts chapter 17. Uh, The Apostle Paul is waiting for individuals in Athens Acts chapter 17, we'll start reading in verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning with them in the synagogue and the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. It's an interesting episode here. The Apostle Paul walks into a city and he's waiting for uh, people to arrive uh, to meet up with him. And he sees this city, and it's one of those things where he can't let this, this idea go that these people were worshiping false gods. Even to the point, look at verse 23, it says, For a while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God, what therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim you. the apostle paul is standing there in athens and he's observing all of the idolatry that's around him and it brought him to a, a passionate desire to see these people fully understand love for god and what that love genuinely is these people were so uh religious and, and idolatrous that just in case they missed one of the gods they made an idol to the unknown god just in case and the Apostle Paul says, this is the God that I'm going to proclaim to you. It's the God that you've missed. It's the God, as he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. This is the God that, that you are not looking to. So the Apostle Paul had a consuming passion. He had a zeal for God that, that drove him to be able to proclaim the name of God. This is, this is good for me to be able to look at this and these episodes, oftentimes, uh, because oftentimes in my Christian existence, I can say that I love God, my mind, looking at the scriptures, my devotion to God, I read God's word, I pray. But oftentimes, you know where the rubber meets the road? Am I willing to say something to my neighbor about Jesus Christ? Am I willing to say something to a co worker? Now, I work uh, with a uh, with individuals who are saved in, in the high school and it brings challenges actually because now I have to I, I'm not around unsaved people quite often I have to actually go out and talk to neighbors and invite them over and, and do different things like that invite them to church and so forth and at times I'm a coward it's, it's tough to stick your neck out on the line oftentimes with people why because you're comfortable you just want to get along with your neighbors. You don't want to step on any toes. You don't want to make them feel awkward or anything like that. But the Apostle Paul was brought to a point in his love for Jesus Christ that he was not willing to not say something. The, the Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, being brought before the Sanhedrin all the way back in Acts chapter 4, they were told, do not speak in this name anymore, or we'll beat you, we'll throw you into prison, and eventually... Uh, As James uh, was eventually killed, the the Apostle James was killed, they knew what was coming. And you know what their answer to the Sanhedrin, the ruling body that had already put Jesus Christ to death? We cannot help but speak in this name. Whether it's right or not, you judge. But we cannot help but speak in this name. Why? Because they had had a, a, a controlling purpose in their life. It controlled everything that they did, and oftentimes the the affections of the heart drive us to that type of of zeal. Um, I'm a I'm a baseball guy. I've, I've loved baseball since I can I can remember. Have you ever noticed the Detroit Tigers are kind of wishy washy from time to time? They're kind of in that that era right now. Where if you're a Tiger fan, you're just like, really, uh, you know, they've got all this talent and all these different things going on. And and at times I've been down to the ballpark. I've been down to the ballpark when they they're really bad, and people would still come out. The diehards still come out. Anybody ever been to Wrigley? Wrigley's. I've always wanted to go. I've never been able to go. They sell out every time. It's like they the Cubs are not even good. I, I guess uh, looking at the baseball this year, they're they're getting a little bit better. But these people are really an illustration of maybe not the best, maybe not a biblical one, more baseball, of course, but this is an illustration of this type of zeal for something. They love their team. And they go. They spend the money. They're there rooting on their team, and their team is, on, you know, most, most years, well under 500. It doesn't matter. We love our team. We're going to go cheer them on. And the idea is that that an affection, a zeal for something, regardless of everything that's going on around it, I love this thing, I love this particular sport, or I love this activity to the point where I'm giving myself to it, regardless of what people think, regardless of the circumstances that surround. Why? Because I have that that deep-rooted, that deep-seated affection for the thing that I love, and I'm not going to let it go. So as we see throughout the scriptures, we see the idea of love. And and tonight we'll look at uh, the, the idea of love for our neighbor and what that actually does look like. In a culture that really doesn't understand genuine love, genuine love has to be rooted first in a love for God as a duty. This is something that I must do as the Spirit works in me, as my devotion something that I'm giving myself to. My will, my choices are being handed over and my affections, this deep-seated love and, and emotion and affection towards Christ is something that drives me to action and is something that is very evident, very evident to all people. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are thankful for your love for us. I pray, Father, that you would stir us up that you would help us to love you as we ought to. We're thankful for your word and what it teaches us about love. You've told us very plainly, Lord, that, that we show our love to, toward you as we keep your commandments, as we demonstrate it. I pray that we would do that, that you would help our hearts to, to understand uh, the love that we should have for you and the love that you have for us, and that it would cause us to act, that we would not be ashamed that we would not be people who love ourselves too much and, and are shying away from spreading the gospel to others, but that our love for you, our zeal for you would show, and that it would show in our love for other people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.